Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. So before we get into our interview with Fiona Sutherland of The Mindful Dietitian for today, a couple of little updates and admin things before we get started. So first, I was having a little bit of uh, mic issues when we recorded this episode, so my audio is actually through Zoom, which is a little bit different than what I normally use, but it will be back to normal next week. And A huge thanks to all of our current patrons. As you've been hearing for the last couple of weeks, we did start a Patreon for the podcast where we're putting out exclusive content every week and we'll continue to have tons of new bonus content in the new year, which we won't want to miss. So check it out at patreon.com slash wholehearted eating. Speaking of content coming in the new year, we wanted to give you all a preview of what is to come in January since we know that it can be a really stressful month with all of the diet and fitness culture BS floating around. So the theme for all of January for the podcast is going to be how to survive January without going down a diet or reset culture hole and how to actually start to implement long-term sustainable health promoting behaviors. We'll have another episode on what to do if you feel like intuitive eating isn't working for you or can't work for you for a variety of reasons, and what is a normal versus an optimal relationship with food. So since we're going to be covering all things under this topic, please send us your questions to either hello at wholeheartedeating.com or you can reach us on Instagram at wholeheartedeatingpod. For today's episode, we have Fiona Sutherland, who is also known as the Mindful Dietitian in the social media space. So Fiona is a dietitian in Australia who works with dietitians and health professionals to bring body and food healing messages to the world. She has over 20 years of experience in working with eating disorders, body image, and counseling skills, and is committed to mindfulness and self-compassion practices that help both the practitioner and the client. With our conversation today, this is fantastic for both health practitioners and then, of course, all of our non-practitioner listeners who are looking for a safe space to work through their own physical and mental health concerns. We are discussing what is trauma-informed dietetic care and how is that different than therapy? How does the regulation and awareness of the nervous system come into play in these trauma-informed sessions, and how does this play a key role in creating safe spaces for healing? How can this impact our healing journey with body image and our relationship with food? So if you've ever been nervous or felt really anxious about going to a doctor, a dietitian, or other healthcare practitioner, this is definitely a great episode for you to listen to and understand what's going on in the body that makes you feel this way when that happens. Well, Fiona, thank you so, so much for coming on. Um, To give the listeners a little bit of background, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. I have taken one of Fiona's courses that she did with one of her colleagues, Tracy Brown, on trauma-informed dietetic care. So I feel like this is a kind of coming home episode because a lot of the things that I have learned and then shared in my philosophy on the podcast has 
come from there. And I'm very grateful for that, but I would love if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about you and then also how you came to specialize in body and food healing from a trauma and self-compassion informed approach. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Dana, for having me. It is just it's so wonderful to chat with colleagues and to be talking about things that we both feel so passionate about. So with that said, um, I, I've been a dietitian now for over 20 years. I feel like I've been saying that for about five years. So maybe I need to review the chronological order of things, but you know, for many years and the majority of that time, I've really been specializing in clinical practice. So more disordered eating, body image and eating disorders. And it's only been probably the past um, well, I guess, I guess the, the real unveiling, <laughs> I was actually going to say unraveling now, isn't that a slip to, to make, but you know, unravel, un, unveiling, unraveling, I think they're probably in the same, you know, kind of zone of things anyway. Um, probably a big shift for me, two big shifts. The first was when I became very, very interested in mindfulness practice and acceptance and commitment therapy. That was probably about... I would say 14, 15 years ago. So it was my very first kind of introduction to more thorough, deep mindfulness kind of focused and compassion focused work as a dietitian. So back then, I'm sure, um, you know, I'm not sure whether you were a dietitian back then, Dana, but I'm sure you, that you can imagine that um, it was very much the exception that dietitians were interested in that side of things. And um, I did feel like, oh my gosh, am I doing the wrong thing? Am I trying to be a therapist? You know, and all these questions that we're still asking ourselves today, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, so it was kind of my first, first shift, I guess. And then the second shift was about eight years ago when I did my yoga teacher training. So I'm very interested in, um, in embodiment and interoceptive awareness and the movement side of things. And I was actually really interested in yoga philosophy and it was the yoga philosophy that took me into the teacher training as opposed to a deep wish to teach classes, which I, I have ended up doing, but um, it, it feels like it's a tiny bit of a byproduct of the, my real, my real interest in kind of philosophy and um you know, yoga teaching and the yoga space as a as a full space, as opposed to one small part of it, which is the asana or the movement side of it. So that was kind of more the the second phase, I guess, of my shift. And it was through that that one of the teachers I had was um, very interested in trauma informed care. She also happened to be a therapist and and a, a mental health specialist. And so I just started kind of having conversations with her. I took some classes and some formal training with her as well. And it was, a, that was a, a, a really big shift in my practice because I began to understand the true nature of things like consent um, and, and, and more genuine communication, not just the what we say, but also the how we say it and the environments that we set up. And I began to understand um, and develop an awareness about the neurobiology of trauma um, and the various ways that it can find itself kind of lodged or stuck or, um, you know, kind of 
in the body in some way, shape or form. And then as dietitian, as a dietitian, I was realizing that actually I've been working with people who um, who either had or continue to experience trauma in its various ways, shapes and forms, and that uh, I had been doing that for many years and without having you know an active awareness and of course we can we don't always have to have an active awareness to provide the kind of space where people can grow and learn and change and evolve and all of that um however i do feel like with this kind of last big leap into understanding more about embodiment um neuroception and um neurobiology and the way that our life experiences really shapes our responses to the world and responses to ourselves as well, that that's where I feel like it kind of all came together. Um, and then I feel like I'm saying, and then, and then I started off with two <laughs> pieces. I feel like I'm already up to like five, but um, a big, uh, I just want to give a really, really big shout out to my very, very dear friend and colleague, Marcy Evans, who, who I know that Dana, you are familiar with and many She's of your been listeners. been on the podcast be- before too. There we go. There we go. (laughs) Uh, Because kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She is so adored by myself and, you know, many, many other people. So (laughs) I'm prepared to share her. That's okay. I'm all right there. Um, (laughs) But that, um, you know, she and I kind of came up with the idea of the body image course um, as kind of as a way to offer dietitians an avenue into understanding more about how to do body image work effectively, uh, something we're very passionate about. We kind of come from um, some different uh, not so much different perspectives, but some different fields. Um, You know, Marcy is very, very interested in um you know feminist theory and we're both very interested in health at every size and then i've kind of got the yoga you know interceptive side of things um and there's a lot that crosses over between us so it's a really wonderful way of collaborating with colleagues in service of uh you know in service of our field well we that's our intention anyway is that we are in service so that was um (laughs) that took a little longer than i had anticipated dana (laughs) That's what a podcast is for, right? This is not short form. This is not an Instagram picture or a little TikTok video or, you know, anything like that. We have plenty of time. Um, But it's so interesting, you know, when you were talking about how we all have these kind of multiple evolutions of our thought and philosophy around certain things. And then that kind of translates into our practice. Longtime listeners of this podcast will know I have also gone through those on this podcast since this is, we've had this show going on for um, a, longer than five years at this point when this episode will have gone down. But it's so interesting to me because the ability to create a safe space and like you were saying, not only understand what people are saying, but how they're saying it is such an integral part of being a clinician who can really meet their clients where they are. And yet it's not taught in that way when we are in our dietetics programs, right? I mean, sure. We're maybe we're taught the stages of change and, you know, is someone really ready to make that change? But another really interesting layer to this is a lot of the ways that people try to create safety and manage the big uncomfortable feelings that can happen when you have either 
adverse childhood experiences or trauma of any form is we attempt to control our bodies through the manipulation of food and exercise. And that's like the domain of dietitians. And yet, if we can't really understand where these people are coming from and why they have come to try and control their food or exercise or bodies as a tool for coping with the big T or little T trauma or whatever it is, giving them a list of yes, no foods list is not going to fix why they're manipulating their food in the first place and why they may have developed a history of chronic dieting or disordered eating, or, you know, even a full bloat eating disorder all along that spectrum of their relationship with food. And it's so interesting that that is a huge chunk that is kind of left out. And when you finally have that realization as a practitioner of like, oh my God, this is something that I need to be going into as well. It also, because when we're in, you know, dietetic school, it's stay in your lane, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. This is your scope of practice. It's like, well, wait a minute. This seems very much like it's in the realm of therapy and how can we practice, you know, trauma informed care while treading that line of, I am not a therapist and I cannot fix your trauma, but I can provide that safe space. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dana, for kind of stepping through that so beautifully. Look, I think the um, the foundation of it is that until dietetics as a field, and I mean this internationally as well, because my understanding is that no kind of international organization is actually doing this, until we can lean into the fact that dietetics is actually a counselling field, then we're going to get stuck as educators. So historically, um, you know, yeah, I mean, actually, historically, we've come from, you know, a, a, a place where dietitians were um, very much about food insecurity and and kind of um, kitchen meals, food prep, you know, cooking for large groups of people. That's the kind of history of dietetics. And then, of course, you know, there's the overlay of, um, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy and all the stuff that still exists so much in our field today. But that it probably wasn't until, you know, maybe the 70s, 80s and more so, I think, in the 90s, where we began to be very well known and pitched as the weight loss people and the educators. And I think it coincided, my kind of working theory about this is it kind of coincided with maybe the up, the uptick or the arising of the media dietitian. And so we began to have a little bit more face time with community members and kind of quote unquote general public people, which is just, you know, humans living their lives. <laughs> and I think that we presented a particular picture to people of who we are, what we do. And this kind of uh, picture still exists today, which I think really kind of it, it uh, really perpetuates the lack of diversity. Although, you know, we, we are gradually, gradually really improving that, you know, thank, with thanks to folks like Diversify Dietetics. Uh, we don't have the equivalent of that in Australia <clears throat> yet. I'm hoping that one day that will, you know, arise. Um, and, and and so there's that, you know, the, the, the that we are trained really as educators to do to people rather than being with people. And I think that is the, the really the central tenet of why we find ourselves stuck. And then the second thing is that um, 
Well, statistically, if you think about it, dietitians, if we're just going to stick with our field, our profession, um, that statistically, many of us will have also have experienced trauma, traumas and chronic stresses. So, so it's like, well, we're not kind of some special mechanical human beings here. We too have experienced, statistically, many of us have also experienced trauma as well. So to kind of you know, act as if we are separate to our clients only deepens that sense of the doing to rather than the being with. And of course, there are, um, you know, boundaries around what we would share about our own experiences. But one of my kind of passion areas is understanding our own experiences. So, and sometimes that will take us to therapy and that, you know, great, great. And and sometimes it won't as well, um, but that developing an awareness of what exists in me and how does that show up in my work with other people? Um, most importantly, how can that assist me and the other person? And how can that get in the way? Like what, what is it in me that kind of gets, maybe it gets triggered, or maybe it gets set off by the experiences of other people, even things like people pleasing or overworking or perfectionism, and all those things, which, you know, we tend to have in spades in our field. So there's those two things, which brings us so beautifully to what you mentioned towards the end of what you just said there, Dana, and that is scope of practice. I think we get very afraid. We, I mean, that's if I was to use one word, I would say fear. We are very fearful of stepping, as you said, outside your lane because it's been really drilled into us and in our training. But then also there is a, um, and I use this word a little bit hesitant, hesitantly there's this kind of internal policing of each other as well it's like well you shouldn't be doing that or you should be sticking to you should be you know sticking to these particular topics or this particular way of working and so not only does it come through our training it then also become um it also then comes through you know from within our field as well um and the truth is that there is a lot of what we do for example body image is a classic um, that is, it's actually no one person's job. It's actually everyone's job. And I think the same thing about trauma-informed care. Trauma-focused care is what a therapist does. So examples of that might be internal family systems, or you might be using EMDR, or there are various modalities and ways of working that are the exclusive domain of a highly experienced therapist. That's not us. Being trauma-informed means that we have a, a level of awareness around our own neurobiology and around the neurobiology of humans in general in a way that supports us and assists us to optimise safety and to reduce threat. Because it's only when we are more safe and less feeling less in danger that we can actually move forward into the the, the thing that we're aiming for. So whether that is um, eating more, for example, you know, or eating regularly, or um, preparing myself a meal, or getting myself to the grocery store or supermarket, you know, there are there are lots of tasks that we have around food and eating on a daily and a weekly basis that when we um that when we have experienced trauma and it kind of becomes kind of lodged or stuck in our body and we find ourselves kind of repeating patterns that it can interrupt the very kind of basics of food related self-care so there you go <laughs> 
Yeah. And it, you know, again, going back to when manipulating food becomes a tool in an attempt to create some kind of safety, it's well within our domain, you know, and it's so tough because when, you know, let's take that example as an example, when you come or when a client comes to you who has a history of disordered eating or eating disorder or it's current or anything like that, a lot of the time they have been manipulating their food in an attempt to create some kind of safety bubble for themselves, whether it's they, everything else feels out of control in their life, or, you know, there's many, many, many different reasons why that could be true. And then even as a non-diet dietitian, if you're trying to get someone away from that very rigid structure, which you can see is negatively impacting their life in many different ways, but to them, it's no, I need to hang on to this for my safety. If you then go and try and take that away from them, even when your intention is, okay, I'm trying to get you to this safer place of not dieting, that can feel wildly destabilizing and can activate someone's nervous system to the point where they're like, no, I can't see this person anymore. Even if you're trying to create that safe space. So I want to talk about how people in that example and in other examples, someone's uh, nervous system can be activated because they don't sense a safe space with their practitioner, which then works against healing and how we can kind of assist them to create that safe space. Yes, absolutely. Before we do that, Dana, I'm wondering if it might feel helpful to people listening for us to just reverse reverse the bus, as I say, apparently I'm well known for this expression, just to reverse <laughs> the bus back a few stops to kind of um, clarify what you and I mean when we talk about like the nervous system or about activation, just in case people are like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. I, I'm not, I'm not, you, know, like, you do know here. what you're talking about. We don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And we want to bring people into the space. So, all right, let's start there, Dana. And I'm more than happy just to have a little bit of a backwards and forwards as as we kind of see fit here. But um, when we're talking about the nervous system, what we're specifically talking about is the autonomic nervous system. Um, So the autonomic nervous system operates in a way that is kind kind of intuits safety and threat. So one way that you can think about autonomic is I think about automatic. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that I remember it anyway. So the, yeah. So the um, autonomic nervous system acts under the level of conscious awareness so that we will respond particularly to threat or danger more quickly than our brain can kind of catch it. So I'll give you an example. And this just happened yesterday. I was um, speaking to uh, to a client of mine who's recently joined a hiking group and she was telling me about this experience where she, you know, went with this, went with this group. And then we were actually talking about her nervous system. And she, she had this experience where she uh, was hiking along and typical for Australia. <laughs> we, um, you know, she saw a snake, right? And Typically for us, if you see a snake, you assume it's dangerous and you get the hell out of the way. Like you have, a majority of our snakes are not harmless and and lots of them are, are extremely venomous to the point where you don't want to be a long way from somewhere that you can get help, right? So mm-hmm. in Australia, we, ha- we typically have a high kind of threat danger response to general snakes, right? F- fair enough. That's for the purposes of survival. So she was telling me that she had this response where she took this giant she saw she she was like i didn't even have time it was like my brain clipped through 
reptile, no legs, snake, and then her, her whole body jumped backwards into her friend before she was like, I didn't even, it was like, I didn't even name it as snake. She was like, it happened in such a split second. And we were saying, oh man, that's such a great example of what's called neuroception. And Mm -hmm. and this is one of the ways that the um, autonomic nervous system operates. So that's just a kind of a practical example. So it's almost like, um you know where we think gosh why do i feel why do i feel so anxious when i'm in this particular environment or um you know um i know i don't like going to the doctor or to the gp or whatever but i'm not too sure why like i you know what's kind of going on here but the kind of the the threat response is very dominant in humans and so anything that we see as threatening or dangerous especially life threat of course but you know in our in our modern 2023 um kind of year what we see as threat or danger is 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 less but not exclusively of course it's less about life threat and it's more about things like belonging and welcoming and feeling as if we are part of the world so of course it makes sense that going to see a dietitian would be regarded as threat right going to a a doctor regarded as threat because not only our lived experience have told us that this is an environment where um you know, where we might not feel welcome, we might feel unsafe, we might be told what to do, we might feel incapable, we might not feel supported. Um, So that can be our direct experience, as well as our intuited experience, the kind of what we've what we've heard about what we've seen, you know, all that. So yeah, so the nervous system, we're really talking about the autonomic nervous system. And then yeah, this is kind of acting in the service of um, our safe, to optimize our safety and to reduce our threat. Now, the important part of this for us as dietitians is I really want to emphasize what you said before, Dana, and that is that it is really common that we will act in the service of our safety even when long-term it's harmful or hurting us. So I mean, a classic example of that is disordered eating or even clinical eating disorders. Um, remembering that when we're talking about safety, we're also talking about belonging as well. And so for people who have experienced racism, who have experienced fat phobia or weight stigma, who have experienced ableism or um, ageism or any of the ways in which humans can be led to feel like they're not good enough or like they don't belong, we it makes sense to me. It makes total sense that people are like, well, I'm going to change my body. Body. I'm going to shrink my body. And I want to also note here that when I say change my body, I also want to give a nod to the um, gender affirming changes in body, especially through um, through surgery as well. Um, any kind of gender affirming uh, ways in which folks, you know, turn towards their gender. So I just want to note that too. Um, yeah, so it really makes sense to me. And also it, it kind of makes things tricky for us, doesn't it? Because it's like, it makes sense and, and it's also hurting you. So for us as dietitians, it means that we have to be high level. We have to be really, really, really thoughtful, really thoughtful. And it's often going to take, um, a lot longer than we think. Um, you know, much more so than three sessions, read, you know, read intuitive eating and, um, listen to a couple of podcasts. I um, mean, by the way, I love intuitive eating. I also love my latest 
favorite book I have to say is Reclaiming Body Trust by Dana Sturtevant and Hilary Canavy. Love, we had them on the love, podcast love. recently as well. Oh, of course you did. They are <laughs> fabulous. Love them so much. Um, and their book is just fantastic. I think, especially for people who are feeling kind of stuck and are feeling like, you know, more kind of weight inclusive, non-diet, intuitive eating stuff, not stuff. Okay. Stuff is <laughs> just not quite hitting the mark they take it that that kind of those steps further which i really appreciate yeah yeah i think they've been great yeah i'll definitely link their episode in the show notes because it definitely takes that next level and that is what makes you know this everything that we're talking about currently has so many different layers and when we you know you think can think about this as like a piece of the pie chart or you know what however you want to think about it but in our work as practitioners it's so interesting because the actual food piece can be so incredibly small and people i talk about this all the time to clients when they come to me and they're like you know i came to you and i thought we we're going to talk a lot more about food and it turns out <laughs> we talk way turns less about so food mm-hmm. yeah we talk way less about the actual, you know, habits of eating or what we're more like what we're eating, I would say, um, rather than, you know, the environment in which we are eating or our thoughts around food and, you know, why we choose the foods that we do and the kind of biases that we have against certain foods or for certain foods and why those exist and kind of dismantling all of these, this kind of, I describe it as like a thunderstorm of thoughts that can happen even just to make around making, you know, one single food decision that can mm-hmm. lead to a lot of paralysis, which again, can lead to that threat to our safety, bringing it back to what you were saying as well, which makes it, which makes a lot of sense as to why people, when they embark on this journey of like, okay, I'm, I'm really done with the, you know, strict dieting thing, or, you know, I'm trying to move away from disorder eating patterns and everything, but then they get into this very murky area of, oh my gosh, there's so many layers, you know, how do I go through this and everything? The promise of just having a list of foods handed to you, that's like, oh, eat this, not that seems so much easier and so much less of a threat because you've gone that way before, you know, that neural pathway, right? It is so much easier than trying to do something new. And so I have a lot of compassion for my clients who are like, oh my gosh, you know, it would be so much easier to just go back to dieting. I'm like, well, I mean, probably in the short term, yes, because it's a lot less of an, a mental and emotional journey to just go back to, you know, what you've always done at the same time, when I'm listening to what you're saying, that's not actually what you want for yourself. So just creating that safe space for the clients to come to that realization and kind of guide them along the way, kind of show instead of tell, which is, I know what a lot of, like, I'm a big reader and I, a lot of book reviewers will talk about showing, not telling. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, the different pieces of the puzzle. And when we were putting all of this together, it, when practitioners, new practitioners that I supervise are going, you know, through this, it's like, how do you put all this together? Like, you know, there's so many different pieces here. It can be overwhelming, but when you go back to, it's really just meeting people where they are, learning how to understand where they're coming from and then guiding them where they want to be. But it can be really tough. Oh, I agree so much. I think all of that also uh, for me really needs to be underpinned with a strong foundation of Mm self-awareness. Like I'm a big, big fan of 
self-awareness as uncomfortable and awkward and as icky as that is because you will the the one promise of self-awareness is you will uncover parts of you that you didn't want to uncover (laughs) and that are just really tricky and edgy and it's like oh you know whether that is perfectionism or people pleasing or wanting to be liked or you know over over functioning or whatever it is you know Uh, but this is so typical you know for people in in our field as well so I think that, you know, my, my kind of big, yeah, well, I said, I said before my passion area and I'm like, I'm just aware I'm talking about another passion area. So (laughs) yes, I have several, um, you know, another passion area of mine is really providing spaces where dietitians and, you know, whoever else is interested really, um, can develop that kind of self-awareness that we are much more, um, intuiting or aware of what shows up in us when we are working with others so in some ways this is called intra and interpersonal dynamics that's kind of what it's called um but this is the reason why and i and i trust it's okay to mention this i kind of i invited a bunch of my um colleagues from dietetics and psychology all australians um to to speak at a at a, at a um, I'm going to call it a series or an event that is going to be starting at the end of January um, called Being in Relationship. And the reason I called it Being in Relationship is because that has two different parts to it. The first is being and the second is in relationship. And we can't be in relationship without the being. And this kind of invites us into a space where we are becoming more familiar with what shows up in us. Now, in terms of how, in terms of how this, you know, you know, uh, folds un- unfolds with our clients, this is often called countertransference. So one of the sessions is going to be on transference and countertransference because these are words that we're like, I think I know what that means, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent sure what that means. It sounds like a therapy word, you know, and same with attachment. It's like, oh, it sounds like a therapy word. And it, and look, it does. It comes from the therapeutic modalities. It comes from, you know, psychology. Um, however, understanding how attachment patterns and particularly attachment ruptures end up in our room, which you know, in ways that can strengthen our capacity to understand more about why and how people are using food or restricting themselves of food in order to best meet their needs, which brings us back to trauma-informed care and kind of safety. So, you know, trauma-informed care and, uh, you know, relationality, I guess you would call it, um, you know, th- th- these two pieces, huge missing pieces, um, and does not mean that we're therapists. It doesn't mean we're therapists. You know, having an awareness of something doesn't mean I'm going to go in and discuss it and, uh, you know, dig around in it or anything. <laughs> I'm going to say it sounds like there's something here. It feels to me like there's something here that if you felt willing to take to your therapist might be really interesting for us to kind of just investigate, create a little bit more space around or, you know, however we express that. Um, yeah, because I think that's good. What, what you were pointing out before, Dana, is it's still a lot more of the dominant we're doing too. If I only, if I have the skills, if I do it good enough, then my clients will, you know, quote unquote, succeed, which means that I will succeed. So it kind of gets a bit icky when we're like, oh, 
what if we were to redefine what it means to work with people? What if we were to redefine what kind of quote unquote success looks like and feels like and is like in the context of relationship? Um, just as we're trying to do it all, try, trying to do our best as humans in this very complex world. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, multiple times is there is a lot of stress and pressure and a lot of our own tendencies that come up in self-awareness work, like people pleasing and productivity equals value and everything like that. And perfectionism, especially if you have your own practice because of the way or, or one of the reasons is because you want to practice the way that we do. So, so many of our colleagues know, like when you're in this field and so, mo so many of our colleagues have our own practices and then it's like, okay, well, if I don't see a certain number of clients, if I don't sell a certain number of courses, then, you know, I'm not going to have food on the table. I'm not going to pay my bills. And so that can lead to a lot of stress and pressure on acquiring a lot of new clients, having success with your clients. And so many of those tendencies can come in and create a lot of stress and pressure. And then when, you know, clients are coming in. And they also have a lot of stress and pressure. Of course, that's one of the reasons that they're coming to you. It's really hard to compartmentalize enough to have that safe space in order to create that safe space for clients to come and heal. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and you can go in whatever direction you want with this is you mentioned, um, or you posted on your Instagram a while ago, how about each of us have a home base in our uh, autonomic nervous system that we tend to go under pressure or stress. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Cause I loved that notion. And it, when you explain it, it makes so much sense. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Dana. Yeah. Um, so when I talk about a home base, I guess um, I'm drawing on the work um, of Deb Dana. I was going to say I was going to say Dana, and then I got stuck, and I was like, ah, <laughs> "It's um, Dr. Deb Dana." Yeah, exactly. You'll take that. Um, who wrote the book Anchored? And it, which is a beautiful book. It's, it's it's actually quite new. It's only about twelve months old. Really great intro, foundational book for understanding polyvagal theory and the nerve and the autonomic nervous system. Um, she she mentioned a home base or something a lot like this in maybe a podcast interview, and that I haven't seen it written anywhere else. But I just want to credit um, Deb for you know putting this little worm in my mind, um, and. So there are different, what's called different branches of the autonomic nervous system. Um, and, and we tend to, our, our system tends to respond in, in a certain pattern under situations of threat or danger. Now, many people will have heard of the terms fight, flight, freeze. So fight and flight are branches of what's called the sympathetic nervous system. Um, so this is the, the kind of the first place that we go to when we're feeling under threat. So fight is, you know, we might um, become, I don't know, obstinate or, um, you know, our, finger, our fingers and hands might clench into a fist when we've, you know, received an email or a phone call or something, we're in traffic or something like this. Um, and this tends to be the first place that we go to. And then if um, it, alongside that, we might go to flight, which is we tend to like want to flee. So this might be all I want to do is just for the ground to swallow me up, that feeling, or um, I, I, 
you know, I stomp out of the room and slam the door behind me type of thing, you know, that, that kind of response. Um, and then freeze is what we call a mixed state. So this is a combination of the sympathetic nervous system and the dorsal branch of the parasympathetic nervous system. So, um, so the the dorsal branch is more the kind of uh shut down zoned out numbed out type of thing that we will all have experienced i mean uh, the lighter version of of freeze is daydreaming for example you know or like oh i just read that page and i need to read it again what the hell you know so so we all do it we all do it we all find ourselves in all of these states and then the one that i kind of missed which is the which is the main beautiful one is is the safety state. So this is one of the, um, this is the parasympathetic, belongs in the parasympathetic nervous system. So this is the, um, what's called ventral, ventral vagal. So we have sympathetic and then we have ventral vagal, which is our safe, this is the safety state where we feel like we can communicate and talk and we're kind of in the zone. We're in our zone of communication and being in the world. And then there is also do the dorsal vagal um, branch as well, which is more shut down, um, yeah, zoned out type of thing. So when we're not in our safety state, um, when something happens, which kind of, I call it like it throws you out of your zone or throws you out of your window or you get kind of pushed out of your window or, you know, that's what people call triggered, right? So this is, you know, when we, when we get triggered that or something happens where we will have an immediate response, will our, our home base will tend to be either kind of fight flight so sympathetic will be activated and charged and like if we think about it like a temperature we tend to go hot first yep whereas there are other people who have had experiences of trying to do the fight flight and it hasn't been effective so they'll go kind of straight for the the shutdown um pull back go in myself withdraw numb out that side of things more the dorsal home base and interestingly, to kind of join together two parts of our conversation, the countertransference is often, um, you know, if, if you're having, say, a heated discussion at the, you know, at the dinner table or whatever, or even online, you know, you're noticing a heated discussion online or something like that, that um, we can very quickly go from it doesn't matter to I don't matter. And that's where we can have a very, very strong response because there are very young parts of us that can be really hurt and can be really kind of triggered by that, especially if we have had, you know, repeated experiences in the past of feeling like we don't matter. So, you know, that's where under and having that self-awareness of, you know, rather than, for example, engaging in a, you know, engaging in a discussion or, you know, um, I want to also mention, I want to also, you know, recognize and acknowledge that, you know, shutting down and going in ourselves is a protective response. So we, we never, ever, ever want to pathologize a response, even if, and, and I understand that, you know, um, dominant Western medical and psychological culture can pathologize responses. You know, we look at even things like the pathologizing of trauma through um, the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, for example, super, super, super problematic. You know, whenever I see that, I'm like trauma, that's trauma, <laughs> trauma and, and potential and potentially neurodivergence as well. You know, let's just let's just keep our brains wide, wide, wide open here. <laughs> 
So, um, yeah, to kind of join those two parts of our conversation, actually a third part of our conversation too, which is the building of awareness. When I, when I notice what is happening in me in these moments, I am able to develop the skillfulness to soothe and to be with my own experience with compassion and mindfulness and understanding so that I can show up in the world in a way that matters, that is values aligned, that um, where I feel like, you know, in moments where I feel like maybe I'm not belonging in this environment, in the world, then I can belong to myself just in this moment. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I love how you talked about, we, we really don't want to pathologize these different patterns that we see in ourselves. Right. And it's, you know, one of the things that you had talked about in that post about having a home base is that there's no right or wrong here, right? There's only noticing and if or when it's available to you, responding in ways that build curiosity instead of judgment. Like instead of, oh, I'm such a bad person, like I'll, I always go into freeze or I always go into fight. No, there's a reason why that is your default, right? And mm-hmm. what the best thing that we can do is bring neutrality into the conversation when we can. Oh, that's interesting that I go to that response. I wonder where that comes from, you know, when we have right. the time and space in order to do that. And if you don't have, if you feel like you don't have the capacity or the skills to do that, maybe it's just a different time or it's outsourcing that to a different practitioner where you can really dive into that. And then also acknowledging that the process of diving into that cannot feel good as well. A hundred percent. No, I, I agree so much. And that is the kind of the icky, sticky, tricky <laughs> to use three icky words, um, <laughs> edge that, that we are invited into when we're doing this work with our communities. And might I just mention here for a moment, this is where supervision comes into its own. Like I'm very aware that in the US, um, in Australia and internationally too, that supervision is very much in its infancy. And there are, you know, a fairly small, you know, little groups of us really trying to elevate supervision in our field. But this is where supervision comes into its own, where with a skilled supervisor, you are able to step through those kind of those places that you get stuck or those things that you notice in yourself. So it's not there. Supervision is not therapy. It's not designed as therapy or a replacement for therapy. But it good supervision, I feel, should feel therapeutic. It should feel like there is a specific space being held for you and what emerges in you um, as a result of doing this work, which can really be tough. It can it can really be tough for us. And if we're kind of denying that that it that it's tough, then we're not kind of acknowledging the 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 full kind of human experience. So yeah, I just want to give a big shout out to all supervisors out there and and to people who are, and, a, and an extra big shout out to everybody who is engaging in supervision, because that is a very brave thing to do. It is an investment of time, energy and resources. And that um, I will definitely say I've been supervised actively for about 15 years. I've been a supervisor for about 10 mm-hmm. and um, it is my greatest learning space, greatest ever, way beyond any training that I've done. Oh, it's so incredibly helpful. And especially if you can, again, (laughs) have a relationship with your supervisor where it feels safe to go to them be like, I have this problem and I don't know what to do, right? Because- I always say the mark of a good practitioner is if you can admit that you don't know everything. The second that you think you know everything, you're wrong. (laughs) You're just wrong, you know, because as we have been talking about, 
we are constantly evolving as practitioners in self-awareness in the types of clients and the types of, you know, problems that they have. And we have to keep evolving and keep learning as practitioners in order to be able to better serve the people that we have and we will have in the future. So for anyone who is a practitioner in any kind of field out there, go with supervision. It is so helpful. It has been so helpful for me, you know, and it's at least in the U S there is a requirement of supervision when you're first graduating from, you know, your dietetics program and you're getting your hours for, to take your national boards and everything. But then after that, there's no requirement for supervision, but I think you're right. It is becoming more, I wouldn't say popular, but more known and hopefully more practitioners like yourself will continue to offer supervision because it's so, so important and extremely helpful. Yeah. Agree. Agree. Oh man. Well, I do want to be respectful of your time because not for the listeners, but we are coming up on an hour. (laughs) Um, and so I would love if you could tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find all of your past courses and the one that also is coming up in January, which I will most likely be doing as well. So you can all probably see me in there too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Dana. I really appreciate that. Um, So basically everything of mine you can find at themindfuldietitian.com.au because AU is, you know, the Australian marker there. Um, I'm also on Instagram at the.mindfuldietitian after my main The Mindful Dietitian account was hacked and stolen in May. So I've had to kind of, you know, start again, start that whole account again, which was devastating and disappointing and full of grief. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's just Instagram. (laughs) So there's that too. So you can find me um, playing around there. Um, I do have a newsletter, which I send out, you know what, just when I can. When I can, I am totally taking the, pr- I know that I quote unquote should be doing it regularly. I don't. So I will not be bombarding you and, <laughs> but you will hear from me, you know, once a month or once every other week, something like that. Um, and so the courses that I have co-developed, the one that I've got to say, the t- actually the two that I'm most passionate about are the trauma-informed dietetic care, which we've already mentioned with Tracy Brown and the body image course with Marcy Evans. So we have just released the version 2.0 of that after, well, we were going to do a little tweak and it ended up being a giant overhaul, which involved <laughs> doubling the content. I know, ridiculous. That's happened it's to us so- before too. <laughs> Right. That's so Marcy and I were like, ah, let's just do some little changes. No, turns out that it's a massive overhaul. So there's (laughs) that too. Um, And then I've um, had the great pleasure of working alongside Sumner Brooks at EDRD Pro. So I have um, co-hosted the Binge Eating Disorder course and also the Acceptance and Commitment Therapy course. So um, for people thinking, oh my God, that's a lot of courses. That's what my business is all about. Like my business is all about... um, two main things. The first is education and training for dietitians. And the second is supervision. So um, yeah, you can, if you come to the mindful dietitian, I will then shoot you off into a couple of different directions where you can find out more about supervision. There's also a, a free little course there you can take to understand more about what supervision is and how to access it. Um, and then, yeah, the, the the being in relationship course coming up at the end of January, which I'm so excited about. So the five different mm, the five different parts of the series are first is what does it mean to be in relationship? I'm going to be doing that one. And then second, we have psychologist Deb Newburn talking about attachment. The third is uh, with um, 
Anjanette Casey and Claire Tui, and they're going to be talking about uh, transference and countertransference. And then they are also going to be talking about distress and distress tolerance and building skillfulness around that. And then the fifth one, actually, I'm really excited about this, is with um, a psychologist, a good friend of mine and colleague of mine called Tanya Cooper Terrans, who is going to be talking about understanding your empathy set point. Now, I just happened to have a conversation with her um, a handful of weeks ago about empathy and compassion and empathy set points. And she had some such really, really, really interesting things to say about empathy and empathy set points. So I'm really excited about that. So that's what I'm up to at the moment. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you coming on again. I appreciate all of your courses. <laughs> As we talked about, any dietitians out there, you need to take the trauma-informed dietetic care course um, from someone who has taken it. But again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for staying the full hour. I mean, this is going to be a great episode. I know I will enjoy listening back as I edit it. And I don't really think we have anything to edit out. So it'll just be me re-listening to the episode before it comes out for everyone. Um, but thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much, Dana. It's been such a pleasure. Hey everyone, we are not quite done yet. So if you wanted to listen to more about this topic and more about fight, flight, and freeze and our responses, meaning Dana and Fiona, and what happens to us when we experience these situations, we're actually going into this with some bonus content on Patreon this week with a deep dive episode. So if you're interested in that, you can either head on over to Patreon and listen, or if you are a patron or if you become a patron of the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, you also can get a personalized RSS feed that has all of our regular Wednesday episodes and it will have all of our bonus and deep dive episodes in there too. And you just put that in whatever podcast catcher that you use. So whether it's Apple Podcasts or I personally use like Overcast to listen to, or you can use Spotify, you know, anything like that. Basically, you just use that, you pop it into the podcast catcher that you use. And then every single episode that we put out with the tier that you have subscribed to on Patreon, it will all come in the same feed so you don't even have to go anywhere else to find the bonus content too hey friends it's dana and thanks for listening to the wholehearted eating podcast if you enjoyed the show please share it with your family and friends subscribe so you don't miss an episode and if you can we would absolutely love it if you left a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts this helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies with wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me or Christina for one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling or checking out our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you again here next week.